It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You're listening to the Gluten Free Guide podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Hospital. And I want to welcome my co-host for today, Sandy Werness from the Global Autoimmune Institute. Welcome, Sandy. Hey, Vanessa. So our podcasts about research are often our most popular ones. So hopefully today's will also deliver. Today we're going to talk about another often misunderstood condition, postural tachycardia syndrome, or POTS as it's often called, and its possible connection to celiac disease. This is a condition that presents with a variety of symptoms that can be difficult to diagnose, like chronic fatigue, lightheadedness, fainting, and an uncomfortable rapid increase in heartbeat when standing up, as well as a range of GI symptoms. POTS has even been referred to as the invisible disease. Today, we want to discuss those GI symptoms associated with the condition and its possible link to celiac. It's great. It's a really important subject, and it's a very important comorbidity for celiac disease patients as well as others. My, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my experience. Uh, my celiac daughter also has POTS. She, has, um, she was undiagnosed until she was 18 years old with the POTS part as well as uh, thyroid disease. Um, She was diagnosed with celiac disease at seven and a half. Her symptoms uh, have ranged from the severity of needing emergency room visits because of intense gut pain to cognitive issues, foggy brain and memory problems to nausea and also her inability to eat more than a very small amount at once because it makes her pass out and she has chronic fatigue. So it's a very serious uh, illness. Some people recover and some people don't. And uh, I am so, so thrilled that Dr. Moak and Dr. Sylvester are here today to impart their wisdom and their experience. We, uh, so as to help us better understand POTS and the studies linking it to celiac disease. Uh, we have Dr. Moak from the Children's National Hospitals, um, uh, cardiac, cardiology department, and we have Dr. Uh, Jocelyn Sylvester of Boston Children's Hospital, who is an international expert in celiac disease on many fronts. And we are so, so excited to have you all here today with us. So let's jump right in. Dr. Moat, can we start with you explaining POTS for us in greater detail? Tell us what this syndrome is and how does it present in most patients? Yeah, so it's a very good question. Uh, you know, we see uh, probably at children we follow over like 700, 700, 800 kids who have postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. And um, initially it seemed, it, it seemed to mostly present in adolescent patients, particularly around puberty or post-puberty. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, Vanessa earlier that they do develop uh, these symptoms 
predominantly with standing, of uh, feeling their heart racing fast, being short of breath, having chest pain, being lightheaded, some uh, being dizzy, and some nearly passing out or actually even passing out. So that was why they initially came to the cardiologist to get evaluated. But in seeing these patients, the cardiologists, if they asked additional questions, <laughs> found out that the patients had uh, many, many, many uh, other symptoms, as uh, Sandy was mentioning, that they, they have um, issues with neurologic, uh, you know, neurologic issues. They'll have uh, fatigue, trouble sleeping, trouble with memory, cognitive dysfunction, what we might call executive uh, dysfunction, cognitive, uh, executive functioning. Uh, some of them uh, have chronic headaches uh, and uh, like 80 plus percent have GI symptoms being nausea, abdominal pain, uh, vomiting on some um, alternating constipation, diarrhea. And then many of them have associated uh, joint hypermobility syndrome, or what some people, I think, unfortunately call Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, EDS. Uh, and uh, so they'll have musculoskeletal pain and uh, uh, muscle pains. And then, uh, you know, as you mentioned, uh, there's a lot, there's, it's not well understood, but there's a large overlap between many of the dysautonomia syndrome. So POTS mm -hmm. is one particular entity people will sometimes uh, classify patients as chronic fatigue. Sometimes they'll classify patients as fibromyalgia patients. Um, and each of these entities does share very uh, strong overlap of many, many, many common symptoms. And I mean, and doctors in general like to uh, lump patients into buckets. And, uh, you know, it's not so clear how, uh, you know, I think there's many holes in the buckets that lead uh, the patients to flip back and forth between these different entities, that it's rather sometimes a rather arbitrary classification. But so in a broader sense, we call this uh, entity either dysautonomia and or uh, probably a better term is called chronic orthostatic intolerance. As human beings, we're supposed to be able to be upright and walk on two feet, but many of the patients that we're talking about today have trouble being upright and all kinds of associated symptoms. Oh, that's, that's really comprehensive. That gives us a great, a great idea of the range of symptoms. Um, so what are the most common symptoms that you are seeing in your patients? Can you give us sort of a general rule of thumb, um, well, you know, again, as a cardiologist, many of them come to us with cardiac type symptoms, you know, chest pain, dizziness, passing out, tachycardia. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, having specialized a little bit in, in, in POTS, we do get referrals from the neurologist as well as the gastroenterologist. So for many years, I've been working with Dr. Kirzner as well as some of Dr. Kirzner's associates, uh, you know, seeing uh, patients who have a lot of GI symptoms. And uh, so uh, I've seen, you know, many uh, who were diagnosed with, you know, classic celiac disease. But that's more the minority of, you know, the patients that we really truly see, you know, with POTS. We do see others 
who have dismotility issues of their intestinal tract, as well as some patients who have uh, another uh, issue called median arcuate ligament syndrome. So uh, I would say that a patient who presents with POTS and abdominal pain doesn't necessarily have, you know, wouldn't jump to the immediate conclusion that they have celiac disease. There are many reasons that patients who have POTS have abdominal symptoms. But then again, most in some uh, studies that look at uh, the incidence of symptoms, GI symptoms happen in about 80, 85% of the patients with POTS. Mm -hmm. um, before we um, move along, um, I was wondering, I want to revisit and just ask you if uh, you have also included palpitations and arrhythmias um, as part of the symptoms that you have just laid out for us. Right. So when I say tachycardia, you know, then the, you know, the patients may use that term, but then may use other terms like palpitations, irregular heartbeat. Uh, we're actually doing a study now to see what the incidence of, of this is. And so many of the patients who complain of these things, they have uh, you know very benign kind of arrhythmia we call sinus tachycardia, where their normal speeding up of the heart rate happens uh, with the standing or with their symptoms. And some, the heart rate increase seems to be inappropriate, meaning like that maybe they're just sitting around, they're not anxious, they don't have fever, they're not anemic, yet the heart is beating you know, abnormally fast. So we call it inappropriate sinus tachycardia. But I would say in about 10% of the patients who have POTS and do have palpitations, they do have true what we call pathologic arrhythmias, that they will have uh, premature beats from the top chamber of the heart, a bomb chamber of the heart. Some have ventricular tachycardia, some atrial tachycardia, some we call SVT. So some of the patients have true arrhythmias, but the majority of them uh, have uh, just sinus tachycardia. So we're using a lot of really big words that I fear some of our parent listeners may not necessarily know, sure, or sure. they, you know, their kids might not be able to express, um, you know, I feel palpitations in my chest. Um, yeah. What are some ways that you hear families describe symptoms that would lead you to think it could be a POTS case and, you know, describe it in a way that, you know, a mom who doesn't know these words might um, understand? Yeah. So one of the you know the biggest issues in the in the field is that the mean time from symptom onset to really diagnosis tends to be about two to three years. Mm -hmm. So uh, many of the patients go to different healthcare providers that tend to uh, underestimate, uh, minimize the patient's symptoms, and attribute it mostly to psychological uh, states. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, the main you know again. It POTS doesn't really have um, you know one signature type of, of presentation, and that's the problem. Is that some of the patients uh, have clear cardiac symptoms, uh, you know, being the irregular heartbeat feeling or dizziness, uh, and they present to the cardiologist. Other other POTS patients have primary neurologic symptoms like maybe chronic headaches, uh, fatigue. Uh, fatigue, and so they they see consultation with a neurologist. And on the other hand, we have a you know subset of the patients who have you know GI symptoms, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, so forth. That then they go to the GI doctor. And so uh, many t you know in the past, the different subspecialties didn't really 
put it together that uh, all these different manifestations were really just one disease entity. You know, they attributed, uh, you know, there was something neurologically going on with the patient and it, it, they didn't really pay much attention to the dizziness. Um, so we get referrals from all the, subspe all the subspecialists, but the, the, the biggest thing obviously that we see as a cardiologist is really patients, you know, who have irregular heartbeat feeling, uh, dizziness, uh, shortness of breath, exercise intolerance is another common thing. Many other patients that we see are, are former athletes. They, you know, participate in travel sports teams, uh, they were gymnasts. And then all of a sudden, their exercise tolerance uh, became a whole lot worse, and they can't do uh, what they uh, were able to do, you know, just a few weeks, a few months ago. The other element of this is also it affects like their school performance. So many of them uh, have to like drop. A lot of them are in advanced placement classes and uh, have um, again because of neural, you know, memory issues and ability to pay attention can't really focus on their schoolwork as well as they could in the past, and then have to kind of drop the course load and or go to uh, partial days in school. Dr. Mark, that really resonates with me and uh, with my daughter's situation because she, uh, her memory problems included what I called the clean slate phenomenon. She was really, really smart, but when she was well enough, she would uh, be able to you know, work her way through complicated algebra or you know very detailed history or, or what have you uh, and do it beautifully, but then uh, oftentimes an hour later, her memory would be completely erased just completely. So she was um, only able to uh, do a limited amount of schoolwork uh, and et cetera. So, uh, uh, and many other, many, many more of your comments have resonated. And in, in the case of my daughter, it took maybe, maybe 18 years really to uh, obtain a diagnosis. So, uh, because she really had that um, all along, um, so we actually more recently have been seeing like five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds where the mother is pretty astute and then realizes, you know, there's something wrong uh, with the kid and, uh, and you know, so uh, they seek out, you know, attention, you know, to coming to our clinic. Mm. Uh, so it's, you know, POTS, we used to, again, the, the mean age of the patients usually around you know 15, 16 years of age, but becoming more obvious that it really starts as you were alluding to earlier in childhood that uh, you know the symptoms, particularly the GI symptoms, tend to happen earlier in life, and you know particularly constant chronic constipation is a big issue, uh, and uh, and then they just over time they accumulate more and more symptoms, and the cardiac symptoms tend to happen later on, like in probably in adolescence, and that's why they come to see us in cardiology clinic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, well, to follow that up, Dr. Mo, how do you treat POTS? Um, do, you, is it, do you rely more on lifestyle changes or medications, and what are your thoughts and what are your practices? Yeah, yeah so we know that lifestyle changes is very important. Uh, you know, that sometimes the lifestyle changes are just as important or better, more effective in, uh, in treating the patients than actually medication. So we usually try, you know, try to have them drink a lot of fluids, add salt to the diet, and put them on salt pills. 
have him uh, ex, you know, trying to, we put him in a, a physical reconditioning program uh, and uh, have them uh, try that for a couple of weeks, couple of months and see, see what happens. And then if they don't get any kind of improvement, then we'll think about medication for them. Are you finding that the medication that is available uh, is effective? Yeah, I would say, you know, that at least in two-thirds, three-quarters of the patients, you know, we can at least make their cardiac symptoms better. Uh, the other symptoms, particularly like neurologic symptoms, are a little bit harder to uh, uh, improve because uh, we don't really understand the true cause of those symptoms. So, in fact, uh, I have sort of one study we have in place, we're trying to look at this, but uh, looking at, uh, I work with one of the neurologists, we're trying to study whether there are measures of inflammation going on in the brain or uh, measures of abnormal neurotransmitters in the brain as the cause of some of these neurologic symptoms. Uh, and then uh, with another different kind of neurologist, we're going to be getting studies looking at uh, functional changes in uh, brain blood flow uh, during uh, cognitive challenges. What kind of tests are you using for that? Uh, the, 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 they have to memorize uh, certain blocks of numbers and then have to have recall of the numbers. And what about the inflammation? Are you using any kind of MRIs or? No, we, we're, we're you know either doing like you know peripheral blood studies or uh, we're hoping to get enough patients though who would agree to do like a, have a lumbar puncture spinal tap done to measure, um, you know, what's happening really in the fluid that's uh, bathing the brain, you know, uh, again, you know, where the actions really happen. What, what are you looking for in particular? And then I'll, I'll um, let you all move on. <laughs> well, mostly like uh, uh, things like, inter, you know, measures of inflammation, like interleukin factors, uh, other uh, things that become abnormal during inflammation subsequent TNF-alpha, and then some neurologic uh, proteins uh, that become abnormal. Like, So one of the things we didn't mention is many of, some of the patients we have who have POTS develop it after like head concussions. So we know head concussion is a, you know, induces a neuroinflammatory state uh, and releases a lot of neuro measures of neuroinflammation in the spinal fluid as well as in the peripheral blood. So we're trying to look for some of those markers. Wow, that's, that's all so very interesting. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so POTS is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a can of worms, you know, in the sense yeah. of uh, it's not really, uh, you know, a very small peanut, but uh, the universe of POTS is very uh, <laughs> large. So there have been several studies conducted looking at trying to prove that POTS is an autoimmune disease. What have these studies found, and what could this change for diagnosis in the study of POTS in the future? Yeah, so, no, that, so that, yes, that brings you into today's subject, you know, is obviously like celiac disease is, uh, you know, thought to have a, a, you know, an inflammatory component to it. Uh, we do see uh, some patients who have, you know, classic uh, inflammatory disorders like uh, thyroid and thyroid inflammation and a condition called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. 
you see some patients who have inflammation in their uh, tear ducts, in their tear glands, as well as in their mouth, uh, saliva glands, so they have dry eyes, dry mouth, a condition called Sogren syndrome. Uh, we have a few patients who have classic uh, disease that is called lupus erythematosus, uh, SLE, so we see patients like that. Uh, we have patients that uh, present uh, even with an acute infection who uh, have a pretty severe autonomic failure, uh, meaning the parts of their body that are controlled by the autonomic nervous system don't seem to work okay. And, and in, that, in some of them, if you measure uh, antibodies against certain neurologic uh, proteins, you'll see that they have these antibodies. So it's obviously a post-infectious inflammatory uh, disorder in some. So, uh, you know, so we, we have all these hints. So if you see somebody who has some of these things, it may uh, lead to uh, additional uh, more specific therapies uh, that there may be being sometimes we use uh, an agent called the intravenous immune globulin, which is uh, a pooled protein uh, coming from uh, blood donations uh, to help uh, modulate the immune system. So that's sometimes helpful in some of these disorders or, you know, if someone has uh, like lupus, you know, the treatment for that a lot of times are steroids and sometimes the steroids are helpful in quelling down the POTS symptoms. So uh, if they have thyroiditis, uh, inflammation of the thyroid, usually thyroid hormone replacement alone is not really enough to really affect the immune state that's happening. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, you know, um there are a bunch more questions um, and <laughs> to ask you, but sure, sure. We're, um, I thought we would move on to our other wonderful expert that we have sure. with us here today, Jocelyn Sylvester, and ask her uh, if, if, Jocelyn, could you tell us a little bit about your experiences with your celiac patients? How often have you seen cases of celiac patients also presenting with POTS or, or with Thank symptoms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I think it's, it's been fantastic to listen to Dr. Monk. It's always nice to hear an expert really talk in detail about something that I don't think we really necessarily appreciate or necessarily think about as much as we should. And, you know, sitting and listening, you know, it almost sounds like you could be talking about celiac disease. You know, here's a condition where there's no signature presentation. You can have gastrointestinal symptoms. You can have cardiac symptoms. You know, executive function, cognitive difficulties, and celiac disease, we might call that brain fog. Um, definitely, we see patients with headaches, patients with joint pain, and so definitely there's an overlap of symptoms. And I think one of the really interesting questions is, is there an overall overlap of the etiology of the symptoms? Are they being caused by the same thing? Um, we're a little bit further ahead in celiac disease and that we know more about what's happening in the actual disease um, and sort of what the mechanism is. And so we can answer some of those questions a little bit better, but definitely I see patients who got tested for celiac disease because they had a fainting episode. We have a, we definitely diagnose patients with celiac disease when they're very young, but you know, there's also seems to be a peak around early adolescence, which is when POTS also often is recognized. You know, there's diagnostic delays in both conditions. Both conditions are a little bit under-recognized. And so I think just 
big picture, there's a lot of similarities between these two conditions. And then when you dig deeper, definitely we see patients who have symptoms that overlap. And I think, you know, both conditions have diagnostic delays because both conditions are conditions that I think even more so for POTS than for celiac disease, we don't necessarily think about them fast enough. They're not necessarily on our differential diagnosis when they should be. And so definitely I see patients who have these symptoms. Definitely I have patients who have these symptoms who see cardiology. Are there patients who have POTS, which like all other disorders probably expect exists on a spectrum with different varieties of symptoms who we're not even recognizing? Absolutely. I think one of the questions I had for Dr. Moak was, you know, you're, you're describing a disease that ha comes in all different shapes and sizes, and when you talk about treatments, you know, there's different types of treatments too, and you mentioned early on how as physicians we like to put diseases into buckets. And so do you think that uh, POTS is like celiac disease where you have lots of manifestations of one mechanism where you're responding to one thing, or do you think that, and you have different triggers, like you very eloquently mentioned, you know, injuries, physical injuries is a trigger, infections is a trigger, or do you think that it's multiple manifestations of things that are actually sort of more distinct diseases? Yeah, that's a very good question, uh, Jocelyn. We don't, uh, you yeah. know, that's what we're trying to, uh, we see like a, maybe like about a third of the patients present after some sort of infection, be it an infectious mononucleosis or uh, Lyme disease, though, you know, there's a large debate about so-called chronic Lyme disease, but, but uh, nonetheless, you know, they had some sort of infection. I've seen patients after immunizations uh, develop POTS. Uh, I mentioned or a little early head concussion. So I think like the common element to it is some sort of inflammation. But it also occurs in the setting of at least half the patients that we see have a family history of POTS. Either, you know, multiple kids in a family or, or frequently um, it's, uh, you know, uh, POTS affects women more than men. So it's like the mom may have subtle symptoms of POTS uh, or grandparent. And they actually have families where they're like three regenerational, <laughs> you know. So it's usually, I think, there's a strong genetic component to the potential to have POTS as well as some sort of inflammatory state that gets triggered that leads uh, to these symptoms. And, uh, uh, and you know, again, uh, there may be, you know, different organ systems that are affected more than another. So, you know, if the heart is affected, uh that's, you know, their mode of presentation. If the GI tract is affected, that's their mode of presentation. But in many of them, like we, we have a, a special questionnaire that asks them all these kind of questions. And you see that the majority of them, you know, have, if you will, pan-organ dysfunction. They have multiple dysfunction in multiple parts of their body, you know, be it the GI tract, be it the heart, be it the brain, uh, be it the musculoskeletal system. So, um it, and uh, so do you think that your patients come in a different flavor, like you have a gastrointestinal flavor or a cardiac flavor or a neurologic flavor, or do you think that there's a progression and early on they may have more constipation, later on they may have more cardiac symptoms and then they start to develop neurologic symptoms? Do you think there's a sort of like distinct flavors or do you think there's a progression and things are kind of additive over time? Well, I think, it, you know, both. I mean, they come in different flavors, but uh, but they certainly, you know, many of the parents tell me, you know, the kid had symptoms during life and the pediatrician, you know, thought it was due to something, but it never really went away. And then 
then other symptoms just gradually accrued more and more and more. Uh, so there's that kind of presentation, and then there's the presentation more of an acute presentation where someone like a month or two prior to coming to our clinic, uh, you know, had some acute infection, immunization, head trauma, surgery, something that, uh, you know, is a clearly defined trigger for the onset of their Which illness. Which is fascinating, because that's what we see in celiac disease, and we're learning more about the fact that infections can be triggers. And so yeah. definitely we see these kids who have had this sort of slow course, and we have these kids who, you know what, the whole family had some sort of intestinal bug or respiratory bug, and one kid didn't get better, and they go on to develop celiac disease. I think, you know, the parallels are very striking, and it's yeah. quite impressive what you're doing to try and understand some of these things. Um, I'm interested to hear about your study where you're actually doing lumbar punctures and spinal taps on your patients. And yeah. that's a type of study that's, of course, difficult to do because it's relatively invasive, but often studies are difficult to do because people don't want to participate in them. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that study because I was curious to hear more. Yeah, so like you said, so it's invasive. Uh, so we wanted, to, you know, I was trying to get a, uh, a large cohort, you know, together at first before really subjecting any of them to the procedure. So it's, it's been a, you know, a big sell, uh, you know, it's hard to sell, you know, to the families to participate in this protocol, but obviously because of the nature of having a spinal tap. Though uh, my neurologic colleagues, they don't think twice about doing LPs on patients, you know, with headaches. We everybody. Yeah, right. So, um, but uh, when it comes from a cardiologist, uh, <laughs> they get turned off by it. So it's hard. But, but you know, these um, are, if you will, our hypothesis, you know, in science, if one looks carefully at some very, there's very small amount of data in the medical literature that suggests that uh, in, different, in some of these different buckets, as I call them, you will see differences in neurotransmitter abnormalities in the different diseases, chronic fatigue versus you know, fibromyalgia. And so it may be that different parts of the brain are, that involve more of a certain neurotransmitter may be more abnormal than another part of the brain. And that's why they have you know, GI dominant, cardiovascular dominant, or neurologic dominant type symptoms and so that you know that's one of our theories about it but um, you know I guess we haven't made tremendous inroads yet we're trying to find the right patients to uh, participate well with you with and that's the, always one of the challenges when you have patients who are so diverse and probably have you know different flavors is are you sure you have the right group of patients to find what you're looking for and are you classifying them correctly so right. it's a big challenge it's exciting to hear you're taking it on yeah Right, yeah, no. So there have been a number of different papers that have tried to prove this connection between POTS and celiac disease. One in 2016 found that 4% of POTS patients in the study had biopsy-confirmed celiac disease, which is four times greater than the general population. Another study showed that 56% of celiac patients had some abnormality in their autonomic nervous system. Uh, Dr. Sylvester and Dr. Moak, should we be considering celiac disease in all patients with POTS and vice versa? You want to tackle that question first, Josh? I'll, I'll take that one first and say that um, I think, as we already discussed, the list of symptoms of POTS and the list of symptoms of celiac disease 
overlap a lot. And so I think that in taking that history of a patient from POTS, if you're careful and you find out about gastrointestinal symptoms and some of the neurologic symptoms, and you realize there's multiple symptoms and systems involved, then that's really a time to think about celiac disease. And so I think that whether or not there's a true increased incidence is a different question than whether or not these are patients who deserve to be screened for celiac disease. And I think, should they be screened for celiac disease is the easy question. And I'll leave the harder question to Dr. Mook. Yeah, I mean, uh, in my clinic, we tend to get the more um, challenging patients. So a lot of them have chronic GI manifestations of abdominal pain and so forth and nausea. So um, one of the findings, you know, one of the things we see is that sometimes they've gone to previous gastroenterologists and they do the usual endoscopy and don't find much. And uh, so they, you know, they don't quite, uh, even in, I think, the GI world, there's not, except maybe in certain clinics, there's, uh, again, the understanding of uh, POTS and some of its GI manifestations not so uh, well disseminated. So, um, you know, we, we try and look for some of the, again, they have, they have uh, a lot of GI disability, so we do try and look, you know, rule them out for having celiac disease or, you know, as I said, mentioned dysmotility issues. Uh, so we work a little bit with one of Dr. Kersner's associates, and sometimes we do anodilomanometry studies. Uh, we usually, again, about 5% of the patients, they have uh, this median arcuate ligament syndrome, um, which we find that we, we're fortunate they have one of the uh, premier surgeons who was operated on like two, 300 of these patients, and we you know, do have the median arcuate ligament syndrome, and we do see that um, about maybe two-thirds of the patients do get improvement in their symptoms. So, uh, you know, I think the GI symptoms are multifactorial, but uh, certainly, obviously, finding celiac disease is uh, is an easy, you know, is a good thing. It's easy because it's easy, relatively easy fix. I and mean, as a cardiologist, it's easy to say that. But uh, even if you can put the patients on a gluten-free diet and they feel better, then obviously it's a win-win situation. So I would just, uh, maybe I would ask uh, Jocelyn this question. I mean, some of the patients who come to me, you know, they maybe they've had the classic, uh, you know, blood testing for celiac disease, but the parents have still decided to put the kid on a gluten-free diet. And some of them feel like their, their child is significantly improved. And so, uh, so what would, I don't know if you want to speak to that issue of, uh, if you will, the sensitivity, since we're talking about the diagnosis, the sensitivity, specificity of, you know, the classic, uh, you know, trans glutamate type, you know, the, the M type, the blood testing that you classically do? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point because there's some types of blood tests that we do where pretty much every hospital in the world uses the same machine or one of two machines and you can get a result from any hospital lab and they're pretty interchangeable. Celiac disease antibody testing is really not like that, and the tests aren't standardized. And even labs that use the same test might report it with different normal ranges. Um, and so if you take the patient blood sample, the same patient may be very highly positive on one test and negative on the other, which makes it hard to really definitively rule in or rule out celiac disease, especially once you've started taking gluten away. Um, so I think in terms of thinking about diagnosing celiac disease, we classically think about these tissue transcontaminase antibodies. Now, interestingly, they come in different flavors, 
and there's some thought that one flavor of them called PPG6 might actually be more associated with neurologic abnormalities, but that's not one that we routinely test for at all. Um, there's a few specialized in worlds and labs in the world that would do that, so potentially we're missing some patients there. Some, pa some patients might only have these deamidated gliden antibodies, which are different than tissue transaminase antibodies, and some only have endometrial antibodies, so certainly a single blood test really doesn't rule out celiac disease. I think the flip side of that is that gluten does a lot of things and contains a lot of things, and the peptide sequences that can activate the immune system in patients with celiac disease are just one small part of what's in gluten and gluten-containing grains. And I think, as a general rule, we don't understand a lot about how our body works. We understand even less about the bacteria and fungi and viruses that live in our body, and then even less again about how the food we eat interacts with those bacteria and interacts with our body. And so I think there's many levels where gluten could be doing things. And so I, 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 I think that definitely I have patients who I can't find celiac disease, but definitely do better when I take gluten out of their diet. And so I think this is a case where you really have to work on an individual patient level, be rigorous about ruling out celiac disease, and be rigorous about testing on and off a gluten-free diet with some objective things. But definitely, I think gluten can do more things than celiac disease. So Vanessa mentioned, you know, obviously trying to rule it out. The blood tests are pretty, is a pretty simple thing to kind of obviously have, but do you, do you uh, push it to the point of maybe doing like a small bowel biopsy or what, what, what's your threshold to do something like that? So I think that um, one of the problems in terms of looking at these tests is that when tests are developed, they're usually developed based on small numbers of samples. and they're often tested versus people who are healthy controlled. And so, and when we diagnose patients, especially now where we're really relying on the test, we're not diagnosing the patients who are negative on the test. And so I think if you have a really high suspicion of celiac disease, you really have to do a biopsy. Now, the thing that's interesting about celiac disease is we don't really have a solid gold standard test. And there can be times where we have you know, biopsies that really don't correspond with the antibody test um, because there's nothing that's really all right, this absolutely says this person absolutely has celiac disease. It's a little bit more circumstantial sometimes in looking at how the whole patient fits together. But definitely, I think that if there's a strong suspicion of celiac disease, then a biopsy is a good idea, even if serology is negative. No. And, and this is where genetic testing can be helpful, too, to look at susceptibility. Well, it, it, uh, as the two of you uh, are demonstrating so clearly, this is an an incredibly complex area. I, I feel as though sort of in the world and the universe and in particular with the two of you, the wagons are starting to circle around the many, many aspects um, uh, re that do relate to celiac disease and autoimmune disease. Uh, it's really reassuring that the two of your, uh, you are putting your uh, wonderful minds on, on all of these different parts. Um, that relate. Um, I don't want to stop Dr. Uh, Moak or Dr. Sylvester from asking each other questions and sharing with each other, but we do have a question which is, what do you all see in the future? I mean, uh, it seems as though um, there is definitely room for improvement in quite a few areas, and, and what do you see going forward? So, for example, and but you don't have to stick to just this example, but what about 
at improving the uh, the uh, battery of autoimmune disease tests, which I hear are also um, possibly problematic with regard to consistency, um, et cetera. Um, and you just alluded to that um, with regard to um, other testing. And um, and what about um, your thoughts with regard to earlier detection of uh, celiac disease and associated other um, uh, disorders and autoimmune diseases? So I'm going to take the easy question first and uh, leave the harder one. So I think in terms of any relationship between earlier diagnosis of celiac disease and development of auto, other autoimmune diseases, this is a hard study to do. Um, it involves following a lot of people for a long time. There's some circumstantial evidence from different countries that perhaps if you screen for and diagnose celiac disease, you might have lower incidences of associated autoimmune diseases, such as type 1 diabetes and thyroid disease. Um, certainly, we need more work to show that, but from a sort of theoretical perspective, having ongoing inflammation from undiagnosed celiac disease and activating the immune system is probably not something that's beneficial. Um, and one of the things we're seeing when we hear about POTS is that there's inflammation, immune activation potentially, and so is that part of the reason why you have overlap? It's a possibility. Dr. Mook, what are some of your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, you bring up some good issues, uh, some good questions. Um, you know, I think that uh, obviously it's the early days of trying to understand these uh, these conditions. My own sense is, you know, it's sort of like we're on the uh, on the outside. You know, uh, there's a picture I've seen. You know, of the elephant and different people, you know, touching different parts of the elephant, mm -hmm. and you know, thinking that uh, they're Blind, you know, they have a blindfold on and they ask to, to describe what they see. Uh, and then, you know, it, they don't really see the big picture. And I think the big picture is really that these diseases are really, you know, genetic predispositions to some sort of inflammatory state that do uh, affect different, you know, organ and multiple organ systems. You know, again, how can it be that people with celiac disease have thyroid disease and you know, diabetes, you know, you know, it has, there has to be some common origin. Same thing with POTS, you know, it has, how can all these different organ systems be dysfunctional, uh, you know, and um, so there, there has to be a you know, commonality of, you know, some, uh, which we don't quite understand, some deeper, you know, level uh, trigger, you know, for these things. Uh, and, you know, One so of the questions we get asked about celiac disease a lot and we have a little bit of data in celiac disease, is, is celiac disease becoming more common? Is the frequency of celiac disease increasing? Are we just thinking about it more and diagnosing it more? And we have some fairly convincing data that actually celiac disease is becoming more common, and it's not just that we're getting better at diagnosing it. What do you think about POTS? Do you think POTS is something that's always been there that's just been underappreciated and attributed to other things, or do you think it's actually increasing in frequency? Yeah, so I think I think it's an element of both. I mean, the POTS it was the people go back in the medical literature and they you can see descriptions of it in the Civil War. The people called it soldier's heart syndrome, where these where the soldiers would have periods of feeling lightheadedness, dizziness, uh, their heart racing. So it's 
always it's always been there like this disease entity's always been there but i think it's more common these days because uh some of the one of the things we didn't really also mention is environmental factors the environmental factors being uh the household you live in plus your uh you know a lot of times a lot of these the patients who have these who come from the more affluent elements of our society and they're also in higher uh, levels of uh, educational stress uh and i think you know uh the educational system today puts a lot of emphasis and and stress on the students to such a high degree that the work that they're doing really is uh you know too much uh for them at their current level of uh, cognitive development even though they can potentially do it for some of them it's just too much and causes you know an imbalance in the their homeostatic status so i mean one the other element of this is sleep uh you know that many of the patients we see uh have uh you know adolescents in general have a, a you know two to four hour different shift in their wake sleep cycle so most of them don't really want to go to bed to like maybe 12 one o'clock in the morning and wake up at you know 9 10 but they're forced to live in an adult functioning society where you, you know you wake up at 6 or 7 and you go to here at work at 7:30 or something and you know, school starting at 7 7:30 and so um what we see is when they don't have to go to school like they're in the summertime or even now in this covid shutdown situation a lot of them are doing tremendously better because their biology is allowed to work uh in biological rhythms are allowed to work in a more natural kind of way uh so their immune system is not um you know as, as challenged as it is uh uh you know in a, in the normal kind of environment So we know I have a question for you about that. So one of my favorite topics I also am a general pediatrician and I think one of our biggest epidemics is sleep deprivation at all in all age groups from infancy on up. And so how much does just how much you sleep affect your autonomic nervous system and your autonomic function? And do you think these patients are doing better because they're just actually getting the sleep that they need? I'm always amazed when I see patients who come to me for ADHD and you can get them to sleep more their symptoms improve a lot. And so, do you think it's actually sleep deprivation or sleep cycle like being out of rhythm that's the problem? Yeah, so the the good questions. Uh you know, we we try and uh, you know as uh Sandy mentioned, you know, in the in trying to do like more uh, wellness uh treatment, we try and get them to sleep better like sometimes we'll you have them take melatonin to fall like many of them have trouble falling asleep some of them can fall asleep but they can't stay asleep so those who can't fall asleep will try melatonin to try and improve their sleep function and in some you can but the majority of them again i think at least when we see them and maybe it's because the the illness has gone on for a while they have some element of brain dysfunction and they just it's hard to make really improve their sleep but those who do you know are able to do that particularly in the summertime you know they get more sleep they do you know significantly better and you know one of the things you know we we didn't touch maybe a little bit about this is that there's a lot of plasticity meaning that uh, there's a 
back and forth between inflammation can affect the nervous system function and abnormalities of nervous system dysfunction induce inflammatory states too. So um, there are, there's evidence that uh, you know if you think of the, the nervous system as a push-pulley kind of system that part of this nervous, so you have two different opposing forces. You have an excitatory part of the nervous system that makes you get ready to fight and then you have a, a more calming part of the nervous system that tries to make you relax called vagal tone. Uh, so increasing vagal tone seem, is known to decrease in inflammation. And so um, one of the things we're also trying to do, um, which we're developing the stimulators now, so we, one of the uh, engineers at the hospital myself, we're trying to look at chronic uh, transcutaneous stimulation to increase uh, vagal tone to kind of see if that affects their, uh, you know, some of their symptoms. And, and, and you, you and the, obviously know in the GI world this development of a vagal stimulator for the ear that uh, it's sometimes helpful in some of the patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, again, another condition we don't know much about. And, and again, has very many, I think many of the conditions we've been talking about today, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, POTS are all symptoms where we have this issue of different flavors and different buckets of patients and we don't really understand them very well and there's probably multiple factors involved in how these patients are presenting. Now, I was just listening to you speak and I was thinking how we've gotten fairly deep into this and we've mentioned several times the autonomic nervous system. And I can't remember if at the beginning we actually talked a little bit about what the autonomic nervous system is. Um, and so I wondered if you just wanted to give us sort of a quick definition to orient us. Sure, sure. Yeah, so uh, the autonomic nervous system, I liken it to like the thermostat in your house. So it, it's in the background keeping, you know, control of the humidity and temperature in the house. But here, the autonomic nervous system in your body is kind of keeping control of your body temperature, your heart rate, your blood pressure. Um, it will alter your state of alertness as well as your state of sleepiness. Uh, so it's a part of the brain that most people don't have control over unless they spend a lot of time doing meditation and uh, special kind of extra, you know, neuro, uh, neurocognitive type exercises to enhance uh, their self-awareness. Uh, and so people can learn to modulate the autonomic nervous system, but the average person doesn't really spend a lot of time thinking or doing anything about it, so it's just doing its own thing, independent of them. Uh, you all have gone past this, but I wanted to throw in that um, uh, you're, it brought to mind um, when you're talking about the sleep situation and, and the children being off and really people being off, um, both being sleep deprived and also their um, sleep patterns being uh, thrown off by, you know, late night studying, et cetera. Um, it, it reminded me of a study that was done by a young scientist at the Salk Institute. Uh, um, uh, and it was, it was well published. It was published in science a few years ago about the influence or the, the alterations in the microbiome in, in connection with the uh, circadian rhythm. So I, I don't want to bring in the microbiome right now because that's just a, a, a huge subject in and of itself. And of course, it's 
incredibly important and interrelated um, neurologically and everything else with uh, with what we're discussing, inflammation, etc. But um, it it does it does show you that there's just a, yet another um, clear cut uh, established example of the effect of um, out of sync sleeping um, has on one's body. Mm-hmm. So I want to go I back to that. talking about just something practical in the clinic. So I can't help but just keep thinking that how similar these symptoms are and, you know, how many times we have patients coming back a year, two years, five years after being diagnosed with celiac disease and swear that they're on a strict gluten-free diet, but they still have stomach aches and they still have diarrhea or they're still exhausted all the time. So is it possible that some of those patients may in fact, you know, also have POTS and need some help along with the gluten-free diet? And if there are parents listening whose kids sort of fall into that bucket of, you know, we're really good on the gluten-free diet, but we're still not feeling perfect, should they, you know, be seeing a cardiologist? Should they be seeing physicians besides their gastroenterologist? Or should they be going to the gastroenterologist and asking them about POTS? Yeah, no, they definitely should. I mean, uh, you know, see, usually the gastroenterologist, uh, I mean, again, unfortunately, you know, in the way medicine is today, uh, may hopefully be better in the future. I mean, uh, most physicians tend to concentrate on one particular part of the body and you know deal with that. And there are uh, maybe Jocelyn can speak to this about her hospital. I mean, we've tried here at Children's to try and make, and that you mentioned Vanessa. I mean, there's multidisciplinary clinics, and so. That will be the wave of the future to kind of try and attempt to uh, treat these kind of patients who have uh, multiple symptoms from different parts of their body. Uh, but uh, the current, I mean, the current, unfortunately, the current economics in medicine make it difficult to kind of do that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really, so we've had in our celiac clinic for the last three years, we've had a neurologist and a neuropsychologist who've screened all of our celiac patients. And so we've been really fortunate. But that really came about because of Sandy and because her experience um, with her daughter. And, Uh, you know, I I don't know that we would be doing this podcast today if it weren't for her pushing us to to start thinking about these things. And, you know, if if Dr. Kirshner was here, he would tell you how stunned he's been by the number of kids who've come through our clinic who have celiac disease and and POTS and, and how real this is for them. Yeah, sure. So, fertile uh, ground, fertile ground, that's for sure. You know, I, I have visions. This has been so great. I have visions of Jocelyn and Dr. Moak. You know, Jocelyn does the endoscopy. Dr. Moak goes in for the lumbar puncture, and we have a multidisciplinary, you know, procedure starting up here. Right, so, yeah. You know, we'll see, we'll see what... The, I think we might have a neurologist doing the uh, lumbar puncture, and Dr. Moak will be putting yes. our... <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Um, well, we are just, we, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, we're so grateful for both of you taking the time today um, to, to have this conversation with us. Um, you know, it really went in so many different interesting directions, and I think it's been a great educational opportunity, not only for, for us, um, but hopefully the medical community, too. It's just so wonderful to see you guys interact with each other and, you know, really sharing of knowledge. So we're, we're really thankful that you um, spent the time with us today um, to do this. Um, we are all out of time for the day and we really hope that our audience enjoyed the podcast and we'll tune in again next time. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.